Welcome to Digisection, a podcast about building great digital health companies and the strategies behind them. My name's Oscar. I'm a physician, inventor, and entrepreneur, and I'll be your host. The following is a conversation with Frank Vesterman. Frank founded MySugar, a company trying to simplify life with diabetes. In 2017, MySugar was acquired by Roche. The company has over 3 million users in 79 countries and keeps growing. And they have a really great tagline, make diabetes suck less. Frank is a really cool guy and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Today, we have a very, very special guest. Hey, Frank, thanks for joining. Oscar, hello. Nice to see you again, and thanks a lot for having me. Where does this podcast find you? Um, it finds me in beautiful Encinitas in Southern California. Oh. I'm looking at a bright <laughs> blue sky, and the sun is shining. So, <laughs> <laughs> There couldn't be a better place for a conversation about healthcare. Okay, so let us segue right into your domain. Tell us more about MySugar, how it started, your early inspirations, and your past company. Yeah, happy to do it. One very important aspect of kind of the whole story of MySugar is that not only me, but also a lot of employees, you know, are living with type 1 diabetes. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 23 years ago. And there was a point in my life around 11 years ago now where mm -hmm. my kind of diabetes therapy was basically all over the place. And I really felt like I need to do something. Type 1 diabetes is a pretty data-driven disease. So if you write down your numbers and you understand your numbers, you can basically help yourself to get into better therapy shape. But of course, a lot of people don't do it because it's annoying and boring. So yeah, I thought, hmm. Maybe think back 2010, the iPhone was available for maybe two and a half years. The App Store was only available for one and a half years. So it wasn't like we had a huge kind of mobile ecosystem already, but it was certainly up and coming. And I was thinking, hmm, you know, these smartphones are a pretty cool tool. And why, you know, I can't just punch in my numbers into that smartphone. The smartphone does something intelligent with it and tells me what to do. Yeah, that was basically my motivation. So I, my motivation was a very selfish one. I wanted to help myself and I motivated a few kind of friends around me to, to help me on my way. And um, that was the beginning of my sugar. As far as I know, there are really many apps for people with diabetes, but my sugar really won the market and proved to be insanely successful. Tell me, what do you think is the feature number one that users love, loved in the past and helped you with, uh, with such a great user retention? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the key aspects is certainly that it's very authentic. We built a tool for ourselves and I think the users really feel it, you know, that we are honestly interested to help him on its way to live a healthier life with diabetes. And there are, of course, a lot of other reasons. I think we've been pretty good with kind of positioning my sugar in a way that make us really stand out from all the other applications. We talked really on eye level with our users. Uh, we understood their needs pretty good. We were communicating very differently. We had this diabetes monster, you know, who gives kind of the reactions to any kind of glucose values you 
type into the app. So, yeah, I think that is really something that stands out against the competition. But also there are other factors. I think a lot of kind of apps funded well enough. We've been able to attract investors pretty early. We've been able to set up a great team and just have enough gas in the engine to let the whole thing running. And tell me, how hard was it to go for the big scale? It's much different, I would say, subset of skills for a founder to start a company, like gather the early team, run the first MVP, and then scale it on the market. What would you say was like the number one key strategy for the successful scaling of, of your app? I would lie now if I would say like we had this awesome strategy and we executed well or whatsoever. When I think back, especially to like the first three years of my sugar, everything has been super chaotic. We founded the company with five people, three left two months after we founded. We needed to basically rehire a whole tech yeah. team. We had no money. 2010, you know, the app stores just launched and there were so few app developers. So it was really hard to get people. It was really a complicated start. But then I think, you know, we understood a few things maybe a bit better than other companies. We understood how we can communicate really authentically with our users. We understood how we can attract users through performance marketing channels with others didn't really figure it out yet. So especially Facebook marketing, the Facebook kind of ad tool was super cumbersome back in the days. But we figured out how we can really precisely address and target people with diabetes through Facebook. Yeah, a lot of these factors really helped us to scale the company and attract the users. Okay. And so would you say that some of those techniques are still applicable for startups in your space or similar startups being created in 2021? No, I think that the landscape really drastically changed. I think that a lot of these markets which have been up for grab maybe 10, 12 years ago, you know, are now basically in the hands of a few bigger players and they position themselves well. And I think it drastically changed. I also think that you need a lot more than we did back in the day. So my sugar, if you look back to 2010, it was a very simple logging application where you manually put in a few numbers. So I think that's just not enough these days. I think you will hardly have a success with, with a pure logging app, no matter which disease these days. And let's now pivot to regulatory. I know you went through the path of uh, FDA approval and becoming a medical product class one. Tell us more about what are the key learnings from this process and what is the right stage for the startup to even think about it? Yeah, I think, you know, there's probably not really one answer that fits all kind of startups when they think about going the regulatory pathway. So I think it's very important to understand that if you go down the regulatory pathway, it creates a hell of a lot of overhead. You really need to have funding, the will, the time to do it. And of course, you need to have a strategy, you know, that would basically force you to go down this route. Because if you want to be more independent, freer, maybe not make deeper medical claims whatsoever, then maybe it's better for you to stay out of, you know, that regulatory area and move faster without an FDA approval or EU approval. For us, it was always really important. And I think also that it was one of the key success factors that we very early on decided we want to be regulatory approved because we wanted to collaborate with the industry. And we pretty early on realized that it's important for us to collaborate with the industry because it's really hard to get a B2C business model off the ground purely based on app 
purchases. The industry, of course, they want to work with companies who follow the rules. So if that is a part of your revenue mix that you need partnerships with pharma companies, with medical device manufacturers, there's no way around being a regulated mm -hmm. device. Okay. And could you tell us more about the thing that you wish you would have done differently while developing MySugar, especially, you know, the, let's, let's call them early times. So the first four, five years. Yeah, so that's a good question. I'm asking that question myself again and <laughs> again. Um, I think, you know, although we already have been in our late 20s, early 30s, when we founded the companies, you know, we, we were first-time founders and we didn't kind of, I don't want to say we didn't understand the game, but we were new to it, kind of new to understanding what it means to scale a company, how aggressive you can be or how aggressive you should be. And I think, you know, for like a European company, you probably did a decent job. But I think, you know, if we had more of an American spirit and mindset to be even more aggressive, you know, and more visionary, I think maybe, you know, we would have achieved other things. And that is certainly something, you know, that when I look back, I think maybe you should have been more aggressive with funding, more aggressive in our growth strategy, more aggressive to go into other things, more aggressive to innovate. And if there's one thing, then it's more maybe that that I would change. As I remember, you were starting in Vienna, in the beautiful Vienna, in Austria. Were you thinking at that time only about Austria and the German-speaking part of Europe as your market? Or you already thought, let's make it at least for the scale of Europe or even global product? No, we very early on were all thinking about the US market particularly because we had basically from the get-go kind of half of our users being based in the US. And also one of our first hires actually was Kyle Rose who helped us in building up the US market. So it always was kind of an important part of the mix that we were thinking internationally. And when I was thinking about being more aggressive, I also mean pushing maybe the boundaries, kind of how we think about the product, how inclusive it could be, and what kind of package we could deliver to our users. That's more in that direction. On the other hand, you know, when I think about Vienna, it was really a great city also, and also a good country for us to start the company, because we were able to sign partnerships with big pharma companies in Vienna. For example, one of our first deals was with Sanofi in Vienna or Abbott in Vienna. So these are kind of the Austrian affiliates of really big companies. For example, think about you would try to make the same thing in Germany or in the US. It would be super, super difficult. But Vienna is a small country. You know, these are mostly sales outlet of these big, big companies. You can rather quickly get something going, a partnership. And, you know, that's a great logo you can put on your presentation. You can claim you work with these companies. These companies internally communicate about these partnerships. And, for example, it was the case with Sanofi uh, that they brought us, you know, to the German affiliate. Then we were at the European level. And, it, you know, it goes that way. And I think, therefore, Vienna has been a really good um, kind of city for us to, to start. But we always had the ambition to, to, to go beyond Austria. Would you call that a competitive advantage coming from a relatively small country? It had certainly disadvantages, mm -hmm. but it also had advantages, um, for example, in that B2B field. Yeah. Okay. And then when was the time when you moved to the US? Was that already after the, the acquisition or was it before? No, it was before. I moved here in 2016. We got acquired one year later. 
I think that the very, very early kind of discussion already started when I moved over, but it was far, far from certain that uh, we would be acquired. I remember sitting at that time in Berlin, reading Moby Health News and reading the story about Roche buying your company. Please tell us more about how that happened and how other founders should think about, you know, potential buyouts and M&A as an, as an exit strategy. Could that be planned in any way or you should just focus on building an amazing product and that's just a, a side effect? Yeah, I think you should never plan for an exit because it is not really kind of in your sphere of influence if that happens or not. So I think you should work on an exit mm -hmm. through an IPO. I think that's a great strategy and you can control it. But of course, being acquired, that is, it is not, especially you never want to really kind of be forced to sell a company and get acquired. So you want that somebody asks you, can I acquire you? That's certainly the better <laughs> way to approach it. So how it went, you know, we, we never really planned to sell the company. It wasn't kind of on our kind of agenda to do it, but we've been approached actually by two companies if we want to get acquired. One of them was Roche, and that kind of kicked off a, a thought process more or less, a thought process that went on for a year. And exactly when we have been asked if we want to get acquired, we, we also were trying to raise another round of funding, and we certainly would have been able to raise that funding. But it was in an interesting time of the market in the digital diabetes field because we had new entrants and especially uh, Libongo, they were really kind of gaining a lot of momentum, sucking up a lot of kind of oxygen in that space. And if you compare the my sugar funding, you know, until 2017, until we got acquired, we raised 7 million Libongo raised somewhere, I don't know, 150, 200 million. So it it was so different, you know, and there's, scale. there's only so much you can do by being smaller, smarter, faster, you know, from a certain point in time, it just matters how much money you were able to raise and with how much force you can move on. We kind of also realized that it's probably better, you know, for my sugar to be part of something bigger that would help us to also get as much power. And I think at the end of the day, it was a good decision to sell the company. Okay. And, and so could you tell us more about the current big synergies of Roche plus MySugar? I mean, we all potentially know how could that work, but tell us more about the things that we don't know and, and the secret sauce behind it. Yeah, the secret sauce, I can't tell you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but no. At least I tried, at least I tried. <laughs> no, and I think it was a very, very successful acquisition for, for both companies. I think that MySugar benefited a lot from the power of Roche. If you look at my sugar now, you know, when we have been acquired, we were around 50 people. Now we are around 200 people. Um, we are very well established within the Roche um, ecosystem at the digital play. Roche, on the other hand, also very much benefited from kind of the digital push and the digital thinking, the bit of different thinking about, you know, how you should work, how things are done. I think these were really great synergies we, we were able to generate. And then beyond that, of course, the product that we brought on the plate with the MySugar bundle, with the concept, you know, that integrates diabetes care through digital tools, through our application, combined with Roche hardware, test strips, for example, for now and the future, certainly other kind of hardware components that are great offering going forward. Okay. And so I know that after the acquisition, you've become an angel investor yourself, a pretty active one. Talk to us about your investment thesis what you like to see in the startups that you believe in 
and about the space that you feel you know passionate about while investing yeah so i mean the passion question is very easily answered you know that's diabetes <laughs> uh digital health it's diabetes you know that's a space where i can really get passionate about because as a patient you know i have a super high interest of course you know to develop the space and make life with diabetes easier for as many people out there as possible But on the other hand, I super enjoy kind of angel investment. And I think, you know, my, my thesis is pretty simple. I think if you only want to be an investor, you're probably better off to just invest into equities on the stock market to get easy in and out. You know, it's a clean thing. And the only thing that it's important for you is a financial return. I think as an angel investor, your role should be different. As most often, you know, as an angel investor, you invest into very early stage startups, you know, there's this angel component that is really important. So you need to help those companies, you know, I made a ton of experience, of course, over the last 10 years. And it's just interesting to kind of talk to younger entrepreneurs and share experience, but also quite frankly, learn a hell of a lot from them, because they're a lot smarter than we have been 10 years ago, I can tell you that it's really great to see. <laughs> and um, I also kind of, I think, you know, one thing that's really important for me is that kind of beyond the product, you know, that I need to like and understand, I even need to like and understand more the founder. And I wouldn't invest into a company where I wouldn't enjoy, you know, having a coffee with one of the founders and talk the problems through because you spend a lot of time with these founders and you just need to, yeah, to like the people. So that, com that personal component is probably as important for me as kind of the financial return and component. And is there any specific company stage at which you'd like to invest? Do you want to see already the prototype or, you know, it's just so much different that, you know, it could range from just having an idea plus founding team to a working prototype or being at the market. What is like the perfect sweet spot? The, quite frankly, I think the earlier is better. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it's somewhere between, hey, we have this idea and we have a first rough idea how it could work. Often the product is not yet there or in a very very early stage because if it goes later stage you know the tickets that i usually write are too small so <laughs> companies are too expensive i'm probably the best in a, in a very early stage of a company and to support them to add value later on i think they figure out what they do on their own and i rather kind of let them run great you're obviously an expert in the b2c market in healthcare what are your thoughts on the future of consumer healthcare and the future of health apps the future of I mean, first of all, consumer healthcare, I think it will only grow stronger and stronger. I think that a lot of parts of healthcare, as we know it today, will, for example, move from a doctor's office into the patient's hands and also kind of from the doctor's office to the patient's home. I think more and more healthcare will be consumed at home. And, and I think that patient takes more the role as a consumer. Also using a lot of tools that he knows from his consumer life. And I think that pandemic now really accelerated that development. You know, we knew how to do a video call. Now we also learned how it is to do a video visit with our doctors. We know how it is to make orders at our at e-commerce platforms and get deliveries at home. In the pandemic, we also learned that you can get your medication delivered at your home. So it really merges this consumer world that we knew really merges now with, with the medical world, with the healthcare um, uh, sphere. So that's a super interesting development, I think. 
when it comes to apps today, it's not enough to just put on a logging app in the app stores. That time is over. We really need to deliver a more comprehensive service, more added value. I think also at my sugar, we felt that only when we really started to deeper integrate with medical devices, the value that we were able to provide to our users really had a huge jump. And I think that is the really important factor for health apps these days. Do you have any particular thoughts on the changes and needs of the user in the post-pandemic world? Are there any like top three predictions what is going to count most? I think maybe these topics which I would bring forward here are not kind of prophetic in any ways. But I think one thing that pandemic really showed was how, how important it is to digitize on so many ends, you know, and I think especially also healthcare, that we are able to perceive and consume healthcare now from home, you know, needs a digital backbone. And that is something, you know, we that's clearly important. Virtual care is gone mainstream. It's here to stay. I think it will have an impact that will be felt strong and strong over the next years. People will be more and more reluctant to go to doctor's offices. They want to consume the healthcare at home. It's such, so much more convenient. Um, you can check in with your doctor whenever you want, whenever you need on your schedule, not go to waiting room, wait there for a long time. So these are just things that I think will continue to exist. I think that, you know, office spaces of doctors can probably shrink. Doctors will also be freer and can work from home. So I think that is certainly one thing that's here to stay. And then the whole kind of healthcare at home topic, I think, will get really used. And also think that, you know, there will be a point in time where Elizabeth Holmes kind of theory and of Serranos, you know, with this diagnostic device at home will come true. I think that kind of her vision was great. And I think that we will sooner or later also have more and more of diagnostic tools at our homes and uh, will share data with our doctors and kind of get their feedback live and act accordingly. You're right. Yeah, I mean, Therana's vision was good, only the execution was <laughs> the, the worst part. <laughs> uh, but while talking about the future, I heard that you're working now on a new company. Could you tell us more? Whatever can you disclose, please tell us. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited about the new thing I'm doing. I can't disclose everything, but it's, of course, again, it's in healthcare. Our goal is with a new company to provide better care, more affordable care for people living with chronic conditions. We hope to be able to start somewhere late summer, early fall uh, with a new product, um, with a new company. It's super exciting. I love that I'm able to work with a few of my ex my sugar colleagues. It's an amazing team we put together and yeah, <laughs> it's super exciting at the moment. That's a really exciting thing. By the way, there's an amazing book about running customer development. It's called The Mom Test. I don't know if you've ever read it. Huge shout out and thanks to my buddy Rasmus who told me about it. I really love it. And so I know how hard is running customer development and like understanding what the user wants in an unbiased way. Tell us more about your way of doing the customer development. Is there any particular strategy or way in which you think it could be done in an unbiased and very honest and I would say analytical way of reasoning? 
Yeah, very good question. Very important question. And probably, you know, there are two ways I would like to answer it. First of all, at My Sugar, we have been patients ourselves. We knew what would probably be really helpful for our users out there. With a the new company, it's a bit different. We kind of try to solve that problem a lot more analytic and a lot more kind of structured. So what we did is kind of we used a platform that helped us to reach out to a lot of our uh, potential customers. We made structured interviews with a lot of these folks. We did surveys and we didn't just, for example, do one survey. We did a bunch of surveys and we're trying to better understand kind of the real needs of the patients. We also, for example, put out a website, kind of a fake website, you know, where we were just seeing, you know, how well would perform, you know, certain Google ads, um, how much would it cost to send people through our fake funnel, basically. Before we decided that we want to go and run and create that company, you know, we kind of created already a lot of data that would help us to understand kind of which problems we really need to solve. But I also need to say that I wouldn't only go for it in a purely analytic way. I would also always recommend to kind of follow a bit your gut. So what you think is really good and sometimes make make a fair judgment between your gut and the data you are able to generate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I do agree that we have to trust our gut feelings and what is going to happen. But still, I always love to make decisions based on metrics. And so my question is, is there any metric or KPI through which you're planning to measure your new business with? Probably the first and most important metric will be customer happiness. So how awesome do our new customers find our products? How much do they love it? Would they recommend it to other people? And that is really, really important. That That's kind of also what in the first months we will certainly focus on to really achieve that customer happiness. As a digital health service, which we will be, you know, it's also important for us that we create outcomes. So good medical outcomes, that's important. And then there are the boring kind of metrics like lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, you know, and all the, the, the typical stuff, you know, but the MBA talk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, but I think, you know, if you really want to create a great product, you know, the most important thing is just to have happy customers. And another crucial thing for me is staying focused and prioritizing the tasks you have to do as the founder. I know it's super hard in the early days. I mean, for sure, you already have your own experiences from the My Sugar story. I've been reading a lot of stoic classics, like the On the Shortness of, of Life from Seneca. And I have one quote that says, people are frugal in guarding their personal property, but as soon as it comes to squandering time, they are most wasteful of the one thing which it is right to be stingy. And <laughs> I remember from my first company, like going to a lot of events, conferences, and, you know, meetings I shouldn't have gone to and probably wasted time, but I didn't know it at that particular moment. Is there any advice you could give to first-time founders and early companies how to prioritize their tasks? That problem of, you know, going to conferences, meeting people, and afterwards you think, oh my gosh, I wasted like a week or whatever, or a few days, or even just one day, you know, oh, I had this so often. The problem is just, you know, you don't know it before, and sometimes you even don't know it like until one or two years after, because maybe it was a super random kind of meeting you had at one of these conferences, coffee with 
somebody random, you know, that it, at the end of the day, it turns out to land a great deal for you, be super helpful with you. So it's so hard, especially, you know, when it comes to kind of interacting with people, going to conferences, meeting people, it's so hard to say if it's wasted or not. But of course, you know, I think there are things that you can clearly kind of work on to optimize it. And I think the, the one thing is that I still do or try to force myself to do is a very simple one, you know, write down at the beginning of the day, basically three tasks that you want to accomplish in a day. And at the end of the day, you look back on, have you been able to accomplish that or not? And even during the day, you know, if you feel like, okay, now you are kind of wandering off, you know, to some other stuff that you shouldn't be working, look back on these three items and try to refocus. That's super important. That's something you can really, that at least, you know, me helped a lot to refocus again. And then kind of in these three points is a super simple thing for you, but, and also kind of setting a goal for a week, you know, for your team, maybe for the next two weeks or whatever, that just kind of helps to calibrate and refocus there's no golden solution for that and also some of the most impactful for example things that happened to my sugar happened totally randomly by hmm. wasting time also so <laughs> what to make the whole thing so hard <laughs> i know i know i know going to meetings isn't always a mathematical equation right where you can actually yep. calculate yep. The, the risk yeah. and the outcome okay one of my last questions for today are there any great books that you would tell other founders to read about either business or, you know, the ones that impacted you and your way of thinking on life and, and developing products? You know, quite honestly, I always have a hard time with that question because I'm not the guy who kind of is into reading a lot of business books or whatsoever. What I totally enjoy is always reading biographies of people who accomplished great things, but they can be doctors, politicians, businessmen. And also, you know what I'm, you know, I'm at least interested in so much stuff, you know, that goes beyond just, you know, optimizing my business style. So I think... I do business basically 12 to 14 hours a day and that consumes so much of my day. And maybe it's wise to read, think and do the stuff, you know, <laughs> beyond the business. Um, you know, when you when you think about your next book, maybe think about that. <laughs> Are you doing surfing in, in San Diego? Is, is that a thing? And that is that is certainly a thing. <laughs> Since I'm, you know, doing <laughs> working on my new company, my surfing days and hours unfortunately declined drastically. <laughs> so, um, yeah, need to find a better balance there as well. <laughs> okay, Frank, thanks for your time and thank you for joining today. Thank you so much for having me, Oscar. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or just go to our website, digisection.fm. See you next time.